I was thinking all week how to introduce this sermon. And actually, if you go back last year and listen to the sermon on March 28th, 2021, that was very impactful for everyone here. And you remember exactly what sermon I'm talking about. Uh, It is the sermon where I shot someone in the head with a BB gun. So some entertainment for you there. But I, I was trying to think about how to introduce this sermon how to introduce this passage of Scripture. And it just, I continue to be overwhelmed over and over that this was, the wor- this was the worst day in human history. And so, so how do you introduce that? How do you talk about that? Do we talk about our worst days? What is your worst day, the worst day you can remember? What is the worst day that you would consider in history, maybe the history of our country? What is the worst day? And then you you begin to think about all of these worst days, and you begin to realize they just sound trivial in light of the cross. Because this is the worst day in human history. What goes on here is the worst injustice. What goes on here is the worst sin. It is the worst moment you could ever fathom where the Son of God is brutally beaten like an animal and left to suffocate on two pieces of wood. How do you introduce that? Well, many writers, they refer to this section of Scripture as the holy of holies of the New Testament. This is where you tread on holy ground. Because something galactic and cosmic is happening before our eyes. Something that it is hard to even explain or take in or understand. The rest of the New Testament is trying to explain what happened here. And why this is important for us. And we know that Jesus has spent the week, Passover week, in Jerusalem... He spent most of that time confronting the religious establishment of the days, calling out the leaders, condemning the temple as this man-made mountain that stands between God and men, that does nothing for sin, actually makes it harder to get to God. He stands in the temple and condemns it. The religious leaders become infuriated with him. They pay off Judas to betray him at night into their hands so they can hold a sham trial with no one around and the people don't know about. And Jesus stands really in six different trials from late Thursday night or early Friday morning until he's finally hung on the cross around 9 a.m. Friday. After he has stood before Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate, overnight. All of that happens overnight. This is a rush job. They want him dead. They want him condemned in secret. Finally, Pilate, who is frustrated with the Jews, overplays his hands And he he stands Jesus and a terrorist named Barabbas before them, the people in Jerusalem, during Passover, and says, which one should I release? 
In his, in his mind, he's thinking, surely they're going to say the terrorist. Not this itinerant rabbi who is threatening the religious leader's power. They're jealous of him. Surely they're not going to say Jesus. And we know how it goes. The people who were chanting at the beginning of the week, Hosanna, as Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, save us now, you are our king, save us, come and deliver us from Rome, come and deliver us and be our king, they scream, crucify him. How does that happen? It only happens in the providence of God. And it reminds us as we move through this section of Scripture where Jesus seems so weak and helpless and it seems so out of control, this cannot be the plan of God. As the people are shouting, crucify him, we say that can only happen by God's providence. And we're to be be reminded as we move through this passage of Scripture that this is all in God's plan. God is the one who is doing this. The people, the religious leaders, Pilate, Herod, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, all throughout, they've been, they don't even know what to do. They, they have no power. They have no authority. They have no plan. They are folded into the plan of God, which we see at its apex beginning in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. This would have been a Jew who had traveled from Libya to Passover to celebrate with his family. And Mark seems to know this family, seems to know, have some connection to this person. He says, who was coming in from the country, Libya, and the father of Alexander and Rufus, they they compel this man to carry Jesus' cross. Literally, they, they force this man who is just standing there to carry Jesus' cross. Now, why do they have to do that? Remember how the passage ended two weeks ago? Jesus has been flogged. He has been tied to a pole, crown of thorns pressed on his head, and he has been beaten, beaten, lashed with leather full of glass and metal and bones He has been beaten to the point that his flesh is hanging off of his body. He has been beaten to the point that that as he is being pushed and shoved and drugged through the city, his organs would have been on display. You would have been able to see his bones, his eyes swollen shut. And these Roman soldiers, they're ready, they're ready to get the job done. That's why they beat him so bad. They're hoping he will die soon. This is, this is just another day at the office for them. They're ready to go home and see their kids and the family and have dinner. And they want this over with. And they have beaten him so bad, he can't carry the cross. And so they call this man Simon to carry the cross for him. Now, remember who Mark writes to. He's writing to Christians who are suffering under Nero, and they would know Simon. And what he is saying to these Christians who are suffering under Nero, some 30 years later, he says, that's what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus, to identify with his suffering in this way. This is what it looks like on the worst day in human history, is that you would carry a cross with Jesus 
in the face of suffering and persecution. But notice verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Now, this was, this was just a trash heap outside of the city. And you would walk up on this place, and it was formed by jagged rocks. And it just looked like a horrible place. And it was named Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, place of death. It was a landfill outside of the city. And this is where Rome hung people, killed criminals. So as you are coming into Jerusalem, you would see criminals hanging at Golgotha. And the point is, don't cross Rome. As a Jew, we know you're a Jew. We, we, we know you believe in this coming kingdom, but don't cross Rome or you will end up at Golgotha hanging like a criminal. And here they take Jesus, a criminal, a blasphemer, to Golgotha to kill him. And along the way, maybe they noticed the pain. Maybe they heard his screams. They offer him wine mixed with myrrh. But notice he did not take it. This would have been like pain medicine. Maybe, they, maybe someone felt sorry for him and offers him this narcotic. But notice he refuses it. Why does he refuse it? Jesus is intent in taking in with every emotion in his soul and every nerve ending in his body the full brunt of the cross. He doesn't want to be numbed to the pain emotionally and physically. He is taking in with full awareness the suffering and the pain of the cross and then verse 24, it says, and they crucified him. And, and this statement, and we've seen it throughout Mark, is just sort of inserted in here. It's just there. This is what they did to him. Point, period, over, stated. They crucified him. This is what they did. Now, for anyone who was around Rome, you needed no explanation of what that meant. They executed him. They lynched him. They hung him. They, they knew what that looked like. They knew what, what that meant. Crucifixion was one of the most brutal forms of death and has been in human history. And it was execution by suffocation. You were hung until you could not take in another breath. The criminal was strategically tied and nailed to beams of wood at the wrist and at the feet, strategically tied so they could hang there for hours and sometimes even days. Strategic ropes or nails in parts of the body that would keep it there for long periods of time. After... <laughs> The criminal had been beaten nearly to death. And as Jesus' body grew tired, as he hung there, he would have begun to slump over. And his lungs over and over would begin to deflate. And he would pull himself up 
strategically tied, strategically nailed in the bone and muscle that he could pull himself up just enough to suck in a breath. Over and over and over and over and over again, his lungs deflate, he pulls himself up. Over and over and over and over again, filling the nails in his wrists, filling the nails in his feet, over and over and over again until his muscles begin to cramp, until there is pain in his side. Mouth full of blood, sweat, bugs, over and over and over again. That is what it meant to be crucified. Brutal. As he pulled himself up on the wood, the wounds from the lashing on his back would have opened up again and again and again and again. Blood would gush again and again and again and again. And we just said that was wonderful. Think about that. Horrific sight. Horrific moment. The wonderful cross, huh? And as this is going on, notice what they are doing. We saw this clearly in Psalm 22 today. They divide his garments among them. This is compensation for having to be away from their family for the day. We'll take this loon's clothes, souvenirs, and they begin to cast lots for them. What else are we going to do? Let's waste our time here. Begin to gamble for his clothes to decide what they should take. His tunic, his shoes, his undergarments, his robe. They take it all from him. They steal from the king of kings. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. Mark wants to get back to that point. What's going on here? As they are gambling for his clothes, Jesus is being crucified. Now imagine this. He was arrested early Friday morning, six different trials, and the third hour is 9 a.m. The Romans were extremely efficient at what they were doing. They had Jesus on the cross by 9 in the morning. They knew what they were doing. It's said of Rome that they crucified so many people they ran out of trees to do so. Notice verse 26, the mocking continues. We talked about this last time. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. Now, this is the charge. He's claiming to be King of the Jews. But remember, Pilate thinks that's hilarious. And he is mocking Caiaphas. Really, this is the guy you're worried about? King of the Jews? Really? Look at King of the Jews? He's hanging on a cross, the King of the Jews. Pilate and many in Rome would have loved this. And yet the Jews walked right into it. Verse 27, and when they crucified him, they crucified him with two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. These were probably men that were involved with Barabbas' rebellion, the man who was set free, who revolted against Rome. 
And you'll notice in your text, there's no verse 28. Some manuscripts include Isaiah 53, verse 12, which just says he was numbered with the transgressors, meaning he is hung as a criminal between two criminals. And it's a picture. Jesus is, is, is killed as a criminal. And he is identifying with us as criminals, as sinners. That's what's going on here. But as we get to this point and we think about the gore of the cross, we begin to see something God is trying to tell us. As he's hanging there, the gore of the cross is to remind us of what he came to do, being hung with criminals, being hung as a sinner. What is he doing here? On 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. And, and, and we begin to understand what he is doing here. He is bearing not his sin, because we know he is sinless. He's not a criminal. He is bearing the punishment for criminals. And we begin to see that the payment for our sin is not just some cosmic bank transaction in a galaxy far, far away made by some spiritual beings that we don't ever get to lay eyes on. Jesus comes to endure wrath and infinite wrath, but he comes to do so in flesh and blood. So we see it, so we know it. What is he doing? He's enduring the wrath and, and curse of God for our sin as a criminal. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 17 of chapter 2, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Flesh and blood, the Son of God, takes upon bones, takes upon a body that is crucified. He endures the wrath of God, but not in a galaxy far, far away, in flesh and blood in Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha, so we would stare at it, so that we would see it, and so that we would know our sin has been paid for in flesh and blood. It's real. It really happened. In verse 29, and those who passed by derided him. Many wouldn't even thought it's just another criminal. And this word der deride is actually the word for a profane jester. It means to turn up your nose. It means to give him the finger. And they are wagging their heads saying, rolling their eyes saying with exaggeration, aha, you, just, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself and come down from the cross. We, we've heard what you've been saying about Herod's glorious temple, that, that you're going to raise it down and rebuild something better. You, you're, you're dying on a cross. You can't even save yourself. And surely if you have the power to, to topple Herod's temple, massive 35-acre temple, you can save yourself from what's happening to you from being crucified. Verse 31, so also the chief priest with the scribes, maybe they show up to make sure the job is done and hear with great, delee, uh, great delight and glee in their hearts. They stand there and they mock him. 
to one another saying he saved others he can't save himself. All the miracles he performed, casting out demons. Those who were paralyzed were getting up and walking. The blind could see all of these stories. He, he can't even save himself. He must be some sort of magician. He, mu he must be some sort of wizard. What, what is going on here? He, he's certainly not the Messiah because he can't save himself. Now get the point. The Messiah should be saving himself, right? No, that's not what God intends for the Messiah to do here. It is to save his people. Verse 32, they continue to mock him. They say, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. You want to perform a miracle? Come down now. Save yourself. That would be a miracle that we would all believe in. If you would come down now, and little do they know, three days later, after it's gotten a lot worse, he does. Raised from the dead. And they will be called to believe in a resurrected king. Those who crucify were crucified with him also reviled him. The criminals on each side begin to mock him. Can you imagine as you are dying, you begin to humiliate the Savior who is dying? And that is to give us a window into our sin. Here at the cross, as Jesus is being mocked and humiliated, you get a picture into your sin. At the heart of your sin, you are a creature created by God who mocks the Creator. Really? You're, you're king? You're, you're creator? No, you're a clown. And you begin to live according to your own wisdom. Your word, God, it, it's a joke. I, I can make sense out of my life on my own. I can do what I want to do. I live in your world, but I'm really king, and I really call the shots. That's what's going on at the cross. But even more than that, sinners are rejecting the Savior, their only hope. And they are saying, we, we, you can't save us, really? Can't do anything for us. And this is, a, this, is a, this is at the heart of who we are in our pride and our sin. And for it, we deserve hell, judgment. We deserve to be the one on the cross, not the king. And this is why, as the text continues, we, we get a little more insight into what's going on. We, we move, in some sense, from the world of men how men are interacting with Jesus to even creation here. Notice verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from lunch, noontime to 3 p.m., three hours, solid darkness over the whole land. And we begin to see creation is groaning here. The light of the world is covered in darkness on a cross. And creation itself is saying something about this. The one who created all things, brought all things into existence, the one who will be the light of the universe forever is covered in death and covered in darkness here. And then we begin to see what, how Jesus experiences this moment. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lamont Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
In the language he would have spoken here, Aramaic, the, the, the words are screamed out. So creation says the light of the world is covered. The light of the world, the Son of God on the cross is declaring to us he has been forsaken. As we read in Psalm 22, surrounded by his enemies, in that moment, Jesus is forsaken by the Father. He's not saying, it seems as if you have forsaken me, Father. It's not what he's saying. He's asking the question, why have you forsaken me? I am righteous. I am holy. I haven't done anything wrong. And God the Father is forsaking the Son, and he feels it. He experiences it. This isn't a cosmic transaction in another world. No, it is something the Son of God feels in his soul. The Father has forsaken him. Eternal fellowship between the Father and Son. The, the, the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And for a moment in time, and it's hard to even explain and fathom, that fellowship in goodness and love was severed. And what Jesus experienced was wrath and hatred and fury. And he is forsaken in that moment. And Jesus himself, all he can get out is why? Jesus is explaining to us what is happening here. Just like in Genesis 3, as Adam and Eve are banished from the garden because they are sinners, Jesus is banished from God in this moment as a sinner. And he fills it in his soul. And notice verse 35, the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling on Elijah. They think that's what they heard. Now, it was believed that Elijah would come when the Messiah would come, and he would be the prophet of the Messiah. And so they say, let's keep him alive a little bit longer to see if Elijah will really come. And so they run, and they fill a sponge with sour wine to, to, to wake him up. And they shove it in his mouth with a stick and say, let's wait and see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Again, the mocking continues. Until we get to a point, verse 37, he will not be rescued in any way. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Other gospel writers say that he screamed in that moment, it is finished. It's finished. It's over. And we are to ask the question, what is finished? Is it really over? Well, notice we go from creation to the sun, how he experiences it, to what God says about what just happened. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. As Jesus breathed his last breath, the curtain, the veil in the temple is torn. Now this was the veil that, that symbolized separation from, from God by the people of God. They could not just come into the presence of God because they were sinful. That would mean death. 
And on the day of atonement, the priest would sacrifice the Passover lamb and he would bring blood into the holy of holies and he would sprinkle it on the ark of the covenant to say to God, we have not kept our end of the covenant. We deserve death, but a life has been taken. Someone else has died. The lamb has died. And the blood would be sprinkled so that God could continue to reside with his people. And here God rips that curtain in two. What is God saying about this moment as Jesus breathes his last? God is declaring to us that he now has offered his Passover lamb. And that there is no separation between sinners and a holy God. And by faith in his Passover lamb, you can come in. The veil is torn. That means more than what we have seen and heard is going on here. When Jesus says it is finished, what is he saying? He is not saying his plan, his life. His purposes for human history are over. No, he is saying something else that is declared to us in the tearing of the veil in the temple. In these moments, what we are to see and what we are to believe here as Jesus is screaming out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. In these moments, Jesus has endured the very wrath of God for you, for your sin, the infinite payment that you deserve. He endured it on the cross. The emotional pain, the physical pain, the brutality would not be enough to forgive you of your sin. There had to be more than that going on. And here as the veil in the temple is ripped, what God is saying to you is there is good news, there is more going on. Jesus has endured the wrath of God on the cross for you and it is finished. He didn't go to hell and fight swords with Satan. It's over. The penalty is paid in that moment. It's over. It's done. He doesn't go to hell. He's already endured hell, being forsaken by the Father on the cross. And this is what the gospel writers will describe as propitiation, which means wrath-bearing. It means that on the cross, the cross in these moments, The penalty for your sin was satisfied. Infinite death, infinite wrath. It is satisfied on the cross as Jesus is forsaken. He is your substitute in that moment. And so as you see the display of darkness across the land, you are to know that God is turning his goodness from Jesus. And as you hear him cry, why are you forsaking me? It's not as though God disappeared for a moment. Because he was turning away from him in goodness, but toward him in wrath. And he is enduring the blowtorch, the fury, the devastation of the wrath that you deserve. And at 3 p.m. on Friday, as there are lambs across Jerusalem that are taking knives to the throat and blood is pouring out, what God is saying on the cross, the blood of my lamb is poured out for you. You can come in. That's the gospel. Here it is. And notice who sees it, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there facing it, he saw that in this way he breathed his last. What does he hear? It is finished. 
And he sees him breathe his last breath. And what does he say? Truly, this man was the son of God. And here is the gospel. The gospel is declared to us at the cross. This man who is one of the most powerful men in the land, this centurion, over hundreds of Roman soldiers who had been a part of the, the beatings and watched the mockings. He shoved the spear in his side and he heard the scream, forgive them. He heard Jesus turn to this criminal that is mocking him and say to him, when you believe today you will be with me in paradise. He heard him say, it is finished. And he says, there it is. He sees and declares to us the gospel. This is no criminal dying. This is the son of God. And here in these moments, like scenes from a movie throughout Mark, we're to have all of these episodes that rewind in our head. Remember throughout Mark. Who is this man? Who is this man? Who is this man? Who is this man? Who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man teaching with authority? Who is this man who is rebuking the religious teachers? Who is this man who is casting out demons? Who is this man? And in the moment of his death, the answer is given. The son of God. And for some of us, it feels like hopelessness. Oh, we missed him. We killed him. But the declaration is given here not because we missed something, it's so we don't miss something. Something is not happening out of his control. Remember how the book of Mark began? In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he declares who he is, and here he's declaring who he is again. But we would say, he's dead. The answer comes here. This is no gospel. Is the gospel lost? Has Jesus lost? The Christ lost? But don't miss who is declaring this. This Roman soldier, a Roman centurion. This man standing here had surrendered all of his allegiance to Caesar. He has declared Caesar is the son of God. And here he, he stands before a corpse and says, here's the Son of God, dead. Now, what is he saying? He is saying, even in death, Jesus is the most powerful ruler he's ever seen. Even in his dying, he still rules and he reigns. And it's what Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 says to us, by canceling the record of debt, the payment that we deserve, that stood against us with legal demands before God. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And as Jesus dies and pays for our sin on the cross, what is he doing? He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What Jesus is doing on the cross is he is saying, I am still king even in death. He is still the son of God even in death. And with his blood, he is purchasing you, purchasing, purchasing you from every other ruler, every other dominion. He is to be your king because he is paying a ransom for your sin which we've talked about over and over throughout Mark, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so as this declaration comes, surely this is the Son of God. It is to be one of fear? 
Because we have said you will see the Son of God coming in power and glory. And that's next week. But it's also allegiance. He is paying for us. He is buying us back from sin, death, and Satan. It's also to be a declaration of trust. Because if he is still the Son of God on the most dreadful day in human history, hear this. If in this moment the declaration can be made, surely he is the Son of God in the most dreadful moment in human history, that confession, that declaration must be made on your most dreadful days. On your worst days, he is still the Son of God. And so on those moments when you are at your weakest point of suffering, those moments where it is the dark, darkest and you feel like the sun is not shining in the middle of the day, mentally, emotionally, on your worst day, if on the worst day in human history he's still the Son of God, he's still the Son of God on your worst day. And he's not taken off guard by it. In your loneliest moment of betrayal, Here's the truth. If he is the son of God, then your worst moment is not hell. And you will not be forsaken to hell. Because he is the son of God. But even more on your most sinful days, he is still the son of God. We would say that this is the, the worst sin in human history. The worst sin. And notice who makes the confession. The centurion with, with, with blood splattered on his face looks up at Jesus and says, surely he is the son of God. And there is the gospel because if he is the son of God, the blood splattered on his face covers the sin he just committed. Think about the glory of the gospel there. It covers the sin of the crucifixion which splattered the blood. And there's the gospel for you. In his death, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not lost. It is found. And there's going to be moments this week where you, you are at your worst. You may not say this is the worst day of my life, but you can look in the mirror and say, I am at my worst. Your anger with your children. You say, how could I say that? How could I think that? The way you lash out at a coworker, the way you kind of go behind their back and exaggerate and lie and tell stories about yourself and about them that cause you to look better than other people around you. The things that not just you will think in secret, but maybe the things that you will do in secret this week. And you would say, I don't want to look into a mirror. But if you could, you would look in and say, this is me at my worst. If during the worst criminal act of wickedness and sin, it can be declared he is still the son of God, you must declare that to you in your worst moments of sin. And you, you can say this. I, I didn't hold the spear. 
but I held the sin that obliterated him, that beat him senseless. I, I, I didn't lash out with jokes, but I held the sin that humiliated him. I didn't cover the sky, the sun in darkness. I didn't do that, but I held the sin that caused the darkness. I held the sin that, that caused him to scream, why have you forsaken me? I held the sin that brought about the justice of wrath, infinite treason. I held that sin. I held the sin that killed him to death. And in those moments where I'm at my worst, I'm reminded of that. And that's why I have to stand before the cross and say, surely he is the son of God. Surely he is the righteous, holy son of God. And I must again and again come to the cross and see the way he breathed his last breath. And as I am overwhelmed with my worst sins, here it is finished. <laughs>